This is from the old school, new school. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 7th day of September, 2008. I'd like to encourage my listeners, as always, to take a look into the Corbett Report homepage at www.corbettreport.com where you will find a documentation list with links to all of the videos, articles, and other documents cited in today's episode, as well as our articles, videos, interviews, and subscription feeds. Now, without further ado, it's time for today's Real News. Our first story comes from Reuters, September 6, 2008. Russia accuses West of provocation in Georgia. Russian President Dmitry Medvedev accused the United States on Saturday of provoking Moscow by using warships to deliver relief aid to its ally Georgia, with which Russia fought a brief war last month. I wonder how they would feel if we now dispatched humanitarian assistance to the Caribbean, suffering from a hurricane, using our navy, Medvedev said, adding that a whole U.S. fleet had been dispatched to deliver the aid. Russia has also accused U.S. warships of rearming Tbilisi's defeated army, a charge dismissed as ridiculous by Washington. Vice President Dick Cheney stepped up U.S. criticism of Russia's actions in Georgia, accusing Moscow of reverting to old tactics of intimidation and of using brute force. NATO has rejected talk of a buildup of its warships in the Black Sea, saying their recent presence in the region was part of routine exercises. Our second story comes from PrisonPlanet.com, September 5th, 2008. Secret geoengineering projects threaten unknown environmental dangers. U.S. government scientists are bombarding the skies with the acid rain-causing pollutant sulfur dioxide in an attempt to fight global warming by geoengineering the planet, despite the fact that injecting aerosols into the upper atmosphere carries with it a host of both known and unknown dangers. The proposal to disperse sulfur dioxide in an attempt to reflect sunlight was again raised in the London Guardian article this week entitled Geoengineering, the Radical Ideas to Combat Global Warming, in which Ken Caldera, a leading climate scientist based at the Carnegie Institution in Stanford, California, promotes the idea of injecting the atmosphere with aerosols. One approach is to insert scatterers into the atmosphere, states the article. 
Caldera cites an idea to deploy jumbo jets into the upper atmosphere and deposit clouds of tiny particles there, such as sulfur dioxide. Dispersing around 1 million tons of sulfur dioxide per year across 10 million square kilometers of the atmosphere would be enough to reflect away sufficient amounts of sunlight. Our final news story this week comes from ABC News, September 1st, 2008. Is the end of unlimited internet near? Comcast, Frontier, and Time Warner Cable are moving toward imposing internet usage caps. Get ready to say goodbye to unlimited internet access. Last week, Comcast, the second largest internet service provider in the country, announced that starting October 1st, it would officially set a threshold for monthly internet usage. In an online announcement, the service provider said that although it already contacts residential customers who use excessive amounts of bandwidth, it had never provided a specific limit. Now, Comcast said it will amend its user agreement to say that users will be allowed 250 gigabytes of monthly usage. The company emphasizes that its cap is generous and will only affect about 1% of its 14.4 million customers. Experts say these customers might include heavy gamers and those who use a significant amount of bandwidth for creating or uploading video. But industry researchers note that Comcast's decision is indicative of a trend by internet service providers to move toward usage-based service plans. On August 1st, Frontier Communications changed its policy to define acceptable use for high-speed internet as 5 gigabytes per month. In June, Time Warner Cable launched a test program in Beaumont, Texas, that imposes monthly internet usage limits of 5 gigabytes to 40 gigabytes on subscribers. Because Comcast is a heavyweight in the industry, its announcement has drawn criticism and questions from broadband and telecommunications researchers. Today's bandwidth hog is tomorrow's average user, said Fred von Lohmann, a senior staff attorney for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, a non-profit civil liberties group. If a cap had been imposed on the top 10% of internet users in 1997, many internet innovations of today would likely not exist, he said. While von Lohmann said that no one has the right to unlimited internet access, developments in the industry need to be monitored. This is not an emergency, but it is something that needs to be carefully watched, he said. Welcome to episode 54, 9 Now or Never. As you might have surmised, today's episode is going to be about the 7th anniversary of the horrific 9-11 attacks which took place in the United States on 9-11-2001. Of course, the research into what really happened on that date is one of the original geneses of this podcast. And now... Even seven years after that horrific date, researchers still keep uncovering enormous anomalies in the source documents and data from that day. One incredible example that I came across recently comes from a YouTube video entitled Fake 9-11 Call from Flight 93 Exposed. You can find that video from my favorites on my YouTube page at youtube.com slash Report. And of course, I'll post a link to it in the documentation list for today's episode. 
But this video uncovers incredible audio evidence of something which people have not previously pointed out concerning a phone call from one of the flight attendants supposedly made from the airplane itself on 9-11. Now you can watch the YouTube video to get a breakdown of this audio, but for today's audio I take the source directly from its original source. This audio comes directly from the United States District Court, Eastern District of Virginia, at vaed.uscourts.gov, under the prosecution trial exhibits for the case United States v. Zacharias Musawi, criminal number 01-455-A. The description on the USDC Eastern District of Virginia website indicates that this is a summary of Flight 77 depicting the identity of pilots and flight attendants, seat assignments of passengers, and telephone calls from the flight. In brackets, the website adds, listener discretion is advised. This exhibit also includes information about the other three flights hijacked on September 11th. This uscourts.gov site, which again you can access from the documentation list for today's episode on corbettreport.com, gives a link to the zip file for this prosecution trial exhibit in the case versus Zacharias Masawi. I urge my listeners to download that zip document, unzip it, and find the information about United Airlines Flight 93. You'll find a link to the telephone call recordings made from that flight. And you'll find one from C.C. Lyles, a flight attendant, leaving a me voicemail message at her home residence phone number. And please be advised that I do not play this extract without deep consideration for all of the lives lost on that flight. I play this because of the startling audio evidence which comes from that phone call itself. Let's listen to the phone call from Cece Lyles to her home residence on 9-11. Tuesday, 9.47 a.m. Hi, baby. I'm, baby, you have to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. I want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. And I'm so sorry, babe. Um, I don't know what to say. There's three guys in hijacked the plane. I'm trying to be calm. We're turned around, and I've heard that there's planes that's been been flown into the World Trade Center. I hope to be able to see your face again, baby. I love you. Bye. Perhaps you didn't catch it that first time around, but listening again, I think you'll find there are discernible whispers going on in the background while C.C. Lyles is making that phone call. However, it is the clearly audible exhortation just as Miss Lyles is hanging up the phone, which is the incredible part of this story. Let's listen again just to the very end of that phone call. Once again, listen very carefully to what is being said just before she hangs up the phone. You did great. You did great. You did great. Who is saying this to CeCe Lyles right before she hangs up the phone? 
This is just another one of the incredible anomalies surrounding the phone calls that were supposedly made from the planes on 9-11. And also from that plane is the Mark Bingham phone call. Hello, Mom. This is your son, Mark Bingham. So yes, there are a number of anomalies surrounding those phone calls, and this is just another one of them. You did great, whispered by someone in the background as she hangs up the phone. Again, the incredible information just keeps coming. And one great example of that comes from Jason Burmis's new documentary, Fabled Enemies. Although I have mentioned the reports that came out in the days after the 9-11 events, indicating that several of the hijackers had actually trained at U.S. military bases in the late 1990s, I had not come across this particular news report, which Jason Burmis includes in that new film. Another indication of how the hijackers were tied to U.S. bases was reported on September 12th by Fox in D.C. They stated, Congratulatory phone calls were made from a separate aeronautical school in Florida, which suggests inside help for the hijackers. Now here at Embry-Riddle School in Daytona Beach, investigators say that they did indeed intercept cell phone calls that originated out of here, calls that were congratulatory after yesterday's attacks. Calls the feds say were made by terrorist sympathizers here in Daytona as well as in Broward County. Yes, that's right. Congratulatory phone calls from Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University after 9-11. And what was Embry-Riddle University? Well, that comes from an article entitled Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University Trained Muslim Terrorists Blames Jews for 9-11 from a blog entitled TMQ2, posted on September 24, 2006. This article reads in part, quote, In its effort to divert attention away from the role Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University played in training and watching the terrorists leading up to 9-11, it did its best to keep the press from gaining access to public meetings concerning what had happened on campus. However, we are the first national medium to document how ERAU played a role in publicly blaming the Jews for 9-11, and to date, it still has yet to investigate its role in allowing 9-11 to occur in the first place. ERAU trains pilots while taking great pride in its Global Security and Intelligence Studies program, and every chance it gets, it calls itself the Harvard of the Sky, more of its pie-in-the-sky approach to America's security issues. Although ERAU employs many retired intelligence officers, like Dr. Richard Bloom, and retired military, like Colonel Fred Cohn, and although ERAU was involved in recruiting terrorists to attend its programs, after 9-11, ERAU stated in its newspaper, quoting from the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University newspaper, The Jewish Connection. America is controlled by the Jews. The American Jew now owns, controls, or intensely influences 100% of our TV networks, 100% of our motion picture industry, virtually 100% of our news and media and international news agencies, an overwhelming majority of publishing facilities, and a similar majority of our radio stations. Can anyone say this is not control? Their dominant control of all American thought has produced a systematic devastation of all of our traditional moral and social standards, with every form of degradation, perversion, rebellion, crime, and absurdity endlessly sought out, detailed, promoted, and glorified on their Jew-tube, movie screens, and elsewhere, always as the public right to know or modern enlightenment. Our TV media will divert sophisticated Americans from the reality of the Jewish connection to the September 11th tragedies. Continuing with the article, 
Amber-Riddle Aeronautical University actually published the above article in its newspaper. Hard to believe, but it's true. End quote. Again, I suggest you check out that article for itself and follow some of the links to find out more information about Amber-Riddle Aeronautics University in Daytona, Florida, which employs not only a number of ex-intelligence officials, but also actually trained several of the hijackers in 9-11. And then again, congratulatory phone calls coming out of Amber-Riddle Aeronautical University on 9-11, again suggesting inside help. Again, just another piece of the gigantic puzzle which is coming together more and more through the efforts of diligent researchers like Jason Burmis. And of course, I would suggest my listeners support Jason Burmis's work by buying a copy of Fabled Enemies on DVD, or subscribing to PrisonPlanet.tv where you can download the film in high quality. Now I'd like to spotlight another diligent researcher of what happened on 9-11. Recently, I had the chance to talk to Dean of dnotice.org, a website devoted to finding out some of the anomalies related to 9-11 and other events, which show how criminal elements have taken control of the U.S. government. I talked with Dean extensively about 9-11, and we concentrated on one of his articles available at dnotice.org, the NORAD Papers, a three-part article which exposes for the first time the actual documentary evidence which disproves Richard Meyer's assertion at the 9-11 Commission that NORAD was incapable of responding to the hijackings on 9-11 because its mission was turned primarily outward. That is to say that NORAD was focusing on outward threats to American airspace and thus could not really respond to an inward attack. Of course, this is ludicrous and has been widely dismissed by the 9-11 Truth community, but Dean at dnotice.org in the NORAD papers lays out exactly why this is ludicrous. Let's take a listen to part of the interview with Dean at dnotice.org. Well, tell us a little bit more about that, what you uncovered specifically regarding that information about an inward-looking function of NORAD. Well, let me give you a few quotes then. Um... My research uh, led me to a 1994 uh, General Accounting Office uh, report on NORAD. Now, of course, when I did my research on the Internet on NORAD, I was looking for articles, articles published or posted before September 11, 2001. So all the articles I'm now going to quote you all come from the 1990s. Uh, before 1995, all the way up to 1999. This is, in, this is from uh, the General Accounting Office 1994 report, and it says, quote, NORAD defines air sovereignty as providing surveillance and control of the territorial airspace, which includes intercepting and destroying uncontrollable air objects, tracking hijacked air uh, air." tracking hijacked aircraft, assisting aircraft in distress, escorting communist civil aircraft, and intercepting suspect aircraft, including counter-drug operations and peacetime military intercepts. So here we have the GAO, 1994, saying that, that NORAD's air sovereignty mission is surveillance and control of the territorial airspace, territorial airspace of the United States and, of course, Canada. So that's within the United States and, and within Canada. So what then does that make of Richard Meyer's testimony? 
So he committed perjury. And um, uh, uh, it, it's a case of, um, if, it, if it went to trial, if it went to trial and um, and the uh, jury uh, was giving me evidence, they would, um, they would convict. Now, if he had only, I don't mean only, but um, if he had never have been in command of one agency before he became um, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, maybe the jury would say, oh, well, he was fuzzy, and um, yes, even though he's chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, he should have known that NORAD looked within and outward, but we'll give him a pass on this. However, because Richard Myers was also in com- was also the commander in chief of a certain agency before he became chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, the uh, jury would of course have to have to um, would con- convict on perjury. And what agency is that that he was uh, commander in chief of before he became chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff? Ah, well, from August 1998 to February 2000. General Richard Myers was also commander-in-chief, was commander-in-chief of, guess what? NORAD? Yes. So, of course, uh, if, he went, if he went to trial, he would be, of course, uh, convicted of uh, perjury. Um, uh, no, no jury would uh, buy that, um, of course, uh, well, I forgot, or I was fuzzy, or uh, I wasn't feeling well that morning when I gave my testimony, and that's why I said what I said. They would have immediately convinced. As I say, Dean and I had a long and wide-ranging conversation about a number of 9-11 research issues, and I suggest my listeners download that interview in its entirety from CorbettReport.com. Again, you can also subscribe to our interview feeds from the subscribe button on our homepage in order to stay up to date with all of our conversation with our fascinating guests. But as it is just days away from 9-11-08, I took some time out from our conversation to ask Dean about his thoughts on the significance of this seventh anniversary. All right, a wealth of information to cover, but finally today I'd just like to ask you, uh, it it is coming up to the seventh anniversary of 9-11 next week. And I wanted to ask your thoughts about what the 9-11 Truth Movement has, been mani- has managed to accomplish so far and what it hasn't managed to accomplish so far, where you think it might be leading from here, and what the significance of an anniversary like the 7th anniversary has. Uh, well, I would like, what I would like to um, see uh, 9-11 Truth is, is is um, for 9-11 Truth, individual 9-11 Truth movement to run for government. I'd like to see um, um, you're going to need individuals with actual actual power, actual authority to implement change because what we have now residing within the United States government doesn't matter whether it's in the bureaucracy, it doesn't matter whether it's in the Congress, or within within the uh, Congress, within the uh, legislative or the um, or, or the Senate. You have individuals. Every member of Congress, every 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 senator, they know what happened in 9/11, and they are they are complicit now in those attacks by failing to speak out. 
even Cynthia McKinney has been, was circumspect when she was a member of Congress several years back. And what we need is, 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 is people who want the truth, who do speak out, running for office, and demanding investigation. And um, I personally, I don't see much happening um, until that happens. Until, um, or at least until more people uh, begin to realize uh, what happened on 9-11. And um, the 9-11 Truth Movement, of course, is uh, waking, has uh, opened the eyes of many individuals that whose eyes wouldn't have been opened um, without um, uh, the likes of Dave Ray Griffin or Stephen Jones. Um, but we also need um, people in office and we need uh, we need um, a real investigation. When we get somebody in office, we need a real real investigation of, of what happened on 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 on, the, on that day. Um, why those failures really occurred. Once again, Dean and his extensive 9-11 research can be accessed at dnotice.org. Of course, all of this research is incredibly important and is being undertaken in the spontaneous grassroots 9-11 truth movement by diligent researchers devoting much of their lives to the study of what happened on that day. But it's important at this point to step back and reflect on what this truth movement is really about, what it is trying to accomplish. The obvious answer to that question is that the 9-11 truth movement seeks only justice for the real perpetrators of those horrific attacks. Justice in this case, of course, will take many forms, but one of the most urgent forms that is needed right now is action on behalf of the true heroes of 9-11, the 9-11 first responders. Those brave, valiant men and women risked their lives on the day of 9-11 and in the days and weeks afterward to assist in the rescue and recovery efforts around Ground Zero and to go through the wreckage of that horrific attack. And one of the lies that were told in the wake of 9-11 was the lie from the EPA that the air around Ground Zero was safe to breathe. The documentary evidence has now come out that the EPA knowingly lied when it made that statement. But unsurprisingly to many 9-11 truth researchers, the court system will provide no justice in this case. That is seen most blatantly in an article from the New York Sun from April 20th, 2007. Court backs EPA chief in 9-11 toxins case. Quote, a federal appellate court has decided that it was not conscience-shocking for the head of the Environmental Protection Agency to have reassured New Yorkers that the air near Ground Zero was safe following the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, even if the air was toxic. Yesterday's decision by the Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals throws out a lawsuit against a former leader of the EPA, Christine Whitman. The panel of three judges reasoned that the government's interest in returning New York to normalcy following the attacks should protect it from lawsuits alleging that the government made false statements about air quality. 
The court did not make any factual finding as to the quality of the error or as to whether the EPA had intentionally misled the public, which Miss Whitman has denied doing. End quote. Now, the extent of just how disgusting a decision that really is in terms of those who are seeking justice for the attacks of 9-11 is made clear when one starts actually researching this topic. I would urge my listeners to take a look into the Feel Good Foundation, F-E-A-L Good Foundation, at feelgoodfoundation.com. This is a nonprofit charitable organization started by 9-11 first responder John Feel to bring awareness to the plight of the 9-11 first responders who are now sick and dying from the injuries and illnesses sustained in the wake of that attack and who are being denied government recognition and government support for their health care. These are the heroes of 9-11 and the government is letting them die. Please go to feelgoodfoundation.com where you can find a link to Save the Brave a documentary detailing the plight of the 9-11 first responders in some detail. To put this into perspective, I'd like to turn to a clip of an interview with one of the 9-11 first responders, Greg Quibell. This interview was conducted by We Are Change earlier this year. Let's listen to this 9-11 first responder tell his story. Greg Corbell, I'm actually a senior investigator for the New York State Department of Corrections. Uh, on 9-11, I was actually, I guess it would consider fortunate, I was working out way out in Long Island in Quorum. Usually I'm working in the five boroughs. I mean, I, I tried every which way to get to the city when I heard what was going on, and it just was impossible. I couldn't get there. So we had a, a meeting in my office, and we decided that the following day, the 12th, we would deploy in some way when we would figure it out the next day. So the 12th, I went into my office about 7 in the morning and we were told to report to the New York City Fire Department Fire Marshals Unit. I was introduced to two fire marshals and we went downtown to the site to the first temporary morgue, temporary morgue actually, and we were assigned. I wasn't, I'm not going to say I was assigned, the fire marshals were assigned and I was, you know, with them to assist in any which way I could to actually try to identify human remains that were in the morgue as far as being civilian, policeman, or a firefighter. And I, did, I didn't stay there too long. I, mean, I spent an hour or two there and just, I, I couldn't deal with it. Plus they had more people that were more qualified to do that kind of stuff. And at that point I was with a young fire marshal that had lost his partner. But the, actually, the, I'm not going to mention his name. He was, he was it, on the, he was a fire marshal then. He used to work in the firehouse, which was right next door to the fire marshal's unit. And his friend was still a firefighter there, and, and he was lost. And I went around with this guy actually trying to find his partner. And, you know, we, found, we found some human remains, and they were tagged and bagged and brought back to the morgue. And that was pretty much what I did the first day. Now, when you were at Ground Zero... Uh, were you ever told or recommended to wear a mask? Were no. told to wear a mask? No. And, and nobody even nobody offered them. I mean, some people got them. Nobody from my unit, or the fire marshals for that matter, we were working with, never even got them. So nobody told you to wear a mask? Nobody told you to no. that you need one? No. Were you ever told that the air was safe to breathe? Uh, believe me, you know, I spent the whole day down there, every day that I, that I was assigned there, and I'd go home and watch TV at night, and the news was all over the news. The air quality, I mean, 
after the first three or four days, I don't really recall exactly when, but they said the air was fine, it wasn't dangerous. By 9-11, I was, you know, for an older guy in my job, I could keep up with the 20-year-olds. I was in excellent health. And now, after 9-11, after coming to Pahal, how has your health been since? Uh, I would say within, within a year, maybe less, after 9-11, I started to deteriorate, not realizing I was really getting sick, though. I was examined by the PA, and just from her examination and, and her questioning me as to my, the symptoms or whatever, she says, you know, I'm, you have pulmonary fibrosis. From what I had told her, the scar tissue, she says, you definitely have pulmonary fibrosis. But I'm going to send you across the street to get a chest x-ray to confirm it. Place the technician or whatever says, Okay, you can leave now, but call your doctor. So we call the doctor, and she says, yeah, you, you have pulmonary fibrosis, no doubt about it. I, I, have, a, I have a life-threatening disease now. I mean, it's, I, I've spent five weeks in the hospital. I, mean, I went to Good Samaritan Hospital, like Teresa said, and they couldn't treat me for the type of for the leukemia. So they transferred me to North Shore LIJ. And I went in right away. They put me on chemotherapy pills right away until I got the bone marrow results, which did confirm... I had leukemia. My, my white blood count was over 100,000. Normal range is like 4,000 to 10,000. Wow. So they put me in the hospital. I went within two days, I think, I was on intravenous chemotherapy, which destroyed my body. I mean, I had so many complications. I had an intestinal blockage. I, had, I got shingles. I got the gout. I got pneumonia. I had pneumonia, which I said I might have for a long time. And within a couple of days, my right arm, this, this scared me to death. My right arm swelled up to five times what it is right now. The sur surgeons thought I had an abscess. And my, the doctors, doctor, my, my oncologist, put in, in a request for an MRI of my arm and a sonogram of my arm, which they never did. And the hospital records will show that they did, but they didn't. I mean, believe me, they didn't. And, this young surgeon came in. My arm got so bad, he decided he was going to go in and remove the abscess. So he started, I mean, cutting into this arm like you wouldn't believe it, at bedside wow. to, to find no abscess. It, it turned out to be cellulitis. Antibiotics would have taken care of it. And I was actually already on the antibiotics that was taking care of it, but wow. he got carried away. And because he went in so far and opened up an, an infection, wow. look at that. I, I had to go. I had to go to emergency. I had to go to emergency surgery to clean up what what this idiot did. Wow. You know what I mean? It was gangrene. They thought he was going to lose the arm. And that started from a little. It started with a little bump that I had told him about. I mean, I had a little so tiny bump in my arm. He just. They just. There is no. This 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 started out as a, as a bump in my arm the size of a dime which I brought to the doctor's attention, I think maybe the second day I was there. You know, they, they destroyed my arm. I mean, they cut out part of the muscle. This, this arm is... He could never go back to work just without a arm because that's a shooting arm. You know, not that I was There's a muscle no man before, but this arm is useless. All, all I can tell you is my life has changed. My health has changed so dramatically. Like, I was never a muscle man, but I was always in decent enough shape, like I said earlier, to keep up with the 20-year-olds in my job. And now I can't, I can't walk from here to the corner. Without my, without running out of energy, I just totally run out of energy. I mean, I spent a lot of time in the hospital. I'm not finished. I have to go back for what they call stem cell transplant, which will hopefully put my leukemia in remission. I got to go back at the end of this month for four to six weeks. It's going to take. I mean, 
I can't, I can't do anything I used to do. I used to play the drums. I can't play the drums anymore. I mean, my whole life has changed. And it's horrible. So you got fibroid fibrosis, leukemia, mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of other stuff. And this is related to 9-11. It all stemmed from 9-11. And, and believe me, in the beginning, I didn't really... I mean, the pulmonary fibrosis, I realized, had to be from 9-11. But leukemia, I didn't even know what leukemia was, to be honest with you. But it, it raised a question in my mind, how could this be related to 9-11? And the doctors, the oncologists, you know, they have a team of doctors and nurses that, that, that are researchers on, you know, for leukemia. And they told me that, that all the stuff that I inhaled while, while I was working Ground Zero got into my body, and it just took this much time for, for them to incubate themselves into leukemia. I was never sick. I was the type of guy who was never sick in my life. This, and after 9-11, I was just, it just destroyed me. The seriousness of the plight of the 9-11 first responders is put into perspective by the sad news of the passing of Greg Quibell last week from leukemia. The story of the 9-11 first responders is the story of the continuation of the deaths that are resulting from that terrible, horrific incident. And all of these, again, stem from government lies. It's important for us to bring awareness to this problem and to support the medical costs of these 9-11 heroes. Once again, We Are Change, which has already raised forty to $50,000 for the Feel Good Foundation, is stepping up to the plate and putting together a series of events to mark the 7th anniversary of 9-11, bring attention to the plight of the 9-11 first responders, and raise money for the Feel Good Foundation. The events will be called 2008 Now or Never, and you can access the website where you can find all the information on these events, the venues, who is speaking, who is performing, and how to buy tickets from 2008nowornever.com. Please go there to find out more information about the 7th anniversary events. But in order to find out more about those events, how people can get involved, and how those who aren't in New York can still help contribute to the cause and help the 9-11 first responders, I recently had the honor of talking to We Are Change founder, Luke Rudkowski. Luke Rudkowski, of course, should need no introduction to regular listeners of the Corbett Report, but suffice it to say that at 20 years old, he revolutionized citizen journalism and started a worldwide political activist movement by taking a video camera to confront Zbigniew Brzezinski about his foreknowledge of 9-11 and his connection to false flag terror events. With that act, Luke Rudkowski sparked a revolution that is sweeping across the world and has so far spawned over 60 chapters in various countries. Now We Are Changes organizing the 9-11-08 events, and all of the proceeds from these events will be going to the Feel Good Foundation in support of the 9-11 first responders. Let's listen to the interview with Luke Rudkowski, founder of We Are Change, talking about the 9-11-08 anniversary events. Today I'm talking with Luke Rudkowski, founder of We Are Change, We Are Change is a social and political activist group which is redefining citizen journalism by asking politicians and newsmakers the questions that the controlled corporate media just won't ask. We Are Change also engages in social justice activism and charitable fundraising, including offering significant support to 9-11 first responders. Luke, it's an honor to talk with you today, and thank you for joining me on The Corbett Report. 
Well, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it, brother. You're doing an excellent job. Just keep it up. Thank you. Well, let's get straight to the heart of the matter. Uh, tell people about what you're planning for the seventh anniversary of 9-11 in New York next week. Well, this seventh anniversary here in New York City, we're planning on doing three days of events, fundraising events for sick and dying 9-11 first responders. We're going to be having movie showings, speakers, symposiums, and also musical concerts by Talib Kali, Dead Prez, Saigon, KRS-One, Channel Live. We're doing a lot of big things this year, and our main goal is to raise as much money as we can for the sick and dying 9-11 first responders. Uh, this year, the need is greater than ever. The further we get, get away from 9-11, more first responders are affected. Hundreds have died. Thousands are sick and dying as we speak. We even had a good friend, Greg Quabell, who was a first responder. He was a federal marshal, passed away actually last week. And we're doing it for him, we're doing it for his family, and all those other heroes who came to this country's need when we needed them most on 9-11. Unfortunately, there are still people out there who aren't even aware of the plight of the 9-11 first responders. Can you tell us about what they're facing and some of the charities you're working with to get these heroes the medical treatment they deserve? Sadly, a lot of people don't understand what's really happening with our 9-11 heroes. Many of the 50,000 9-11 heroes who came down to help during the rescue effort at Ground Zero were lied to by Christy Todd Whitman and the federal government and were told that the air was safe to breathe. The air was not safe to breathe. The government normally lied just to open up the stock market. And we know that from declassified documents that came out from the EPA that they said that they knew the air was not safe to breathe. It was edited by the federal government to say it was safe to breathe so they could start making money at uh, the stock exchange. And right now we have a situation where the federal government does not want to help our 9-11 heroes because if they do support them and give them the proper medical care that they deserve, they're going to have to own up and admit that they lied to our 9-11 heroes. And that's why if the federal government is not going to help those people in need, we are changed, we are here, and we will do their job. We will help those in need because that's what life's about. It's about helping others, doing the right thing, and being there for people who were there for us when we needed the most. Tell us about some of the first responders you've gotten to know in your work with We Are Change. I mean, there's so many amazing individuals that basically gave up everything to help save and rescue people. Uh, one of the, I just got off the phone with Mike McCormick, and he was there on 9-11 with the special uh, rescue unit, and he was actually the gentleman that rescued the flag down at Ground Zero. And his medical uh, history is, is just horrendous, what's been happening to him after 9-11. And the way he has been treated, the way he has been disrespected by our government is just crazy. He's going to be here this year for our seventh anniversary. We're going to be, we're planning on having him down there at Ground Zero uh, during the memorial services, calling out the names of all the first responders that passed away on 9/11. We're also asking people to bring candles out to Ground Zero this year so we could light a match and a candle for all those heroes who passed away after 9/11. And then, again, there's so many amazing individuals. And if you come to New York City and you're here, you get to meet, you get to hear them, and it's really a life-changing experience. It took me meeting these 9-11 heroes to understand that we have to do something to help them. And by meeting them, your life has a totally new revision and totally, totally has new life and makes you want to do the right thing. Well, for those people who do have the chance to partake in that life-changing experience in New York next week, uh, break down some of the events that are going on, uh, where they're taking place, and how people can get tickets. You can get tickets right now at 2008NowOrNever.com. Uh, all the tickets are sold there. You can also buy tickets at the door, of course. We're working on a movie show on Wednesday night where we're going to show Fabled Enemies and Not All of the Truth Rising. The next day we're going to have a huge action 
uh, memorial service vigil down at Ground Zero on September 11th, where we're going to peacefully be there in respect for all those ones lost on that 11th. We're going to call out the names of all the first responders who passed away. We're going to light candles, and we're going to pay respect, and we're going to be silent, and we're going to have our Investigate Not 11 t-shirts on. After that, we're going to have another vigil at Jetson Church, where you will get to hear uh, all the family members speak, all the rescue workers speak. You will get to hear Cynthia McKinney, Green Party presidential candidate, speak. Uh, Daniel Sanjata and other luminaries within the Sonata 11 Truth Movement. And then the big show is happening Friday, September 12th at uh, Spotlight Live. We're doing a big big event at Spotlight Live with Talib Kweli, KRS-One, Dead Prez, Saigon, Channel Live, and many big people within the hip-hop community who are now taking a stand for Sonata 11 Truth. Uh, it sounds like an, an incredible event. Uh, why did you choose to call it 2008 Now or Never? We chose that because this is the last year the Bush administration is in office. This is really the pinnacle of this not alone truth movement. It's either right now or never. We stand up for this country and we do the right thing for it. And we stop the next false flag attack that may happen when the next president comes in. So it's about just this is one of the last years that we really have a huge opportunity to take things back, to do the right thing. And 2008, it's already been seven years. The further we get away, the harder it's going to be. But we need to make a stand right now saying seven years is long enough. We had enough. We're going to stand up for the truth. We don't care. We will be there on 9-11 at Ground Zero this year. And what do you say to the people that believe that when the Bush administration goes away, these types of problems will also go away? I don't believe these problems will go away. I mean, the Democrats and Republicans basically work together. They're a part of the same corporate elite agenda. You know, uh, whether it's the, the Republican or Democrat, they always bring up softball issues, but they never deal with the real issues. Obama wants to spy on American citizens. He approved bills in, in Congress and in the Senate to spy on American citizens. He wants to continue the wars. He's aggressive against Iran and Russia. We know McCain wants a hundred-year war, and this is just the same thing brought over and over again. Every, every election time, politicians bring up so many promises, and they never keep them. Uh, even when uh, George H.W. Bush was running for president, he was speaking just like Obama talked about a change and change and all this, but look what happened. Change never happens. Change cannot happen from the top to the bottom. Change always happens from the bottom to the top, and we are here. We are changed. We're going to create this change all the way from the bottom to the top. It's interesting how the Obama campaign picked up on your name. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah, it is very interesting. We had that name long before Obama started saying change and everything else. And it's more, the idea of We Are Change is more of uplifting and empowering everybody. Everybody becoming a part of this movement. Everybody believing in themselves, having power within themselves to do the right thing. But with Obama and his change, there really is no change. Because, again, he supports wars. He supports spying on American citizens. And it's not really change when you're looking up to one person and trying to get one person in office. It's, uh, you're not changing anything. You're supporting one other dictator that's going to run things just like they, they were usually. So it's about just believing in oneself, having power within oneself to do the right thing, and just moving forward in life. Stepping back for a second, uh, the anniversary of these horrific events is obviously a very solemn time. In your own words, why is it important for the 9-11 Truth Movement to gather together to mark the anniversary? 
because the whole world is watching. The whole world is going to be watching Ground Zero on Not 11. It's very important for us to be out there, send a strong message to the media, send a strong message to everybody out there that we are here. We are not leaving. We are never going to stop doing this. Every year it's a historic event, all the way from 2006 when we had thousands of people down there, from 2007 when we had thousands of people out there. We send out a strong message. We bring more people together than anybody. Uh, you know, this is where Not 11 happened. This is where we get fans members, rescue workers to support our cause. This is where we start everything. We give out literally hundreds of thousands of flyers each anniversary to people for free. We give out thousands of DVDs for the people for free. We educate so many people. We have a huge impact here, and we show everybody that we are here, we are strong, we are not going away anywhere. It's definitely an exciting time, and I think people want to get involved with that. Is there any room for anyone to volunteer to help organize or participate in these events? Yeah, we need all the help we could get, really. We're going, we, mean, we don't get paid by anybody. We don't collect money from anybody. We give everything away, and we basically run on donations. We don't get money from any other groups, any other websites. We run by ourselves. We are independently run organization that just supports ourselves. Anybody can volunteer. Anybody can help us organize. We need all the help we could get. Get, get in contact with us at 2008nowornever.com. We need a lot of help. The more volunteers, the better. Awesome. And uh, how about for the people who aren't in New York at this time and can't make it? Um, is there any way for those people to help support you guys in what you're doing? Oh, definitely. Just promoting it, getting the word out there. Uh, watching the live video feed. We're going to have live video feeds of everything happening on there, promoting it. And, and what, what also thing that we're planning on doing is having a big money bomb day on September 11th to give to the first responders so we can give them money to help them live and survive what they've been through. So get the word out about the money bomb. Give what you can. Just help us promote it and just do the right thing. That's an awesome idea about the money bomb. Is that on the 2008 Now or Never site? Yeah, we're working on it right now. We're doing a lot of incredible things. We don't have a lot of people helping us. We don't have a lot of money, but we're doing everything we can. And one beautiful thing is we have people from all walks of life, you know, uh, you know Asians, blacks, whites, Spanish people, males, females. Uh, Democrats, Republicans, everybody's coming together on this, and nobody's getting paid a single cent. I'm not getting paid. Nobody's getting money, but we all believe in the cause, and that is helping out the heroes, getting out of the truth out there. All right, this is very exciting. Finally, Luke, you've been an inspiration to many people with your activism and in founding a movement at such an early age. What advice would you give to others who are thinking about getting into this type of activism but don't know how best to make a difference? We could all make a difference. We are all changed. We could do anything we want if we believe in it. And it's really just by empowering yourself, believing in yourself that you could do anything. Uh, I started this organization when I pretty much lost everything and I didn't have anything. Lost one of my best friends, lost you know, all the money that I had. And it takes nothing to do this. It just takes effort, heart, dedication, and courage to do this. And we could do anything. Life is short. You might as well live it on your, on your feet instead of on your knees. I'd rather live than, 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 you know, be around all this crap and not do nothing about it. It's about just going out there and doing it. Anybody could do anything as long as we believe in each other. Change can happen. And a lot of people who say, no, we can't do anything. The same thing people were telling Gandhi. The same thing people were telling Martin Luther King. We could do anything we want if we believe in it. We just have to believe in it and go for it. Luke, fire out the websites one more time. Again, the main website for Not Loving this year is 2008nowornever.com. We're going to do a money bomb on wearechange.org on September 11th. You can 
check out some of the live video feeds on there as well. So it's wearechange.org and 2008nowandever.com. All right. Well, from one info warrior to another, I salute you here at the Corbett Report and keep doing what you're doing. Hey, thank you so much. We appreciate your great work. Keep up the excellent work. And God bless you, brother. All right. Thank you. Indeed, it is 2008. It is the seventh anniversary of 9-11. And it is now or never for many of the sick and dying first responders who might not live to see the eighth anniversary. Anyone who can get to the events in New York City is, of course, encouraged to do so, to take part in that life-changing experience. Once again, please visit 2008nowornever.com to find out more information about those events. For those not in New York City or the surrounding area, please go to wearechange.org, where you will be able to access live video feeds of the events themselves, and also contribute to the 9-11 Money Bomb in honor and support of the first responders. Of course, listeners are also encouraged to make donations to We Are Change so they can continue to have such an incredible effect on the political landscape and can continue their operations for another year. Also, for those not in New York City, please find your local 9-11 Truth organization and find out about the 9-11 anniversary events that will be taking place in your hometown. 911blogger.com and 911truth.org are great and invaluable sources of information on the 9-11 Truth movement, and simply Googling your hometown and 9-11 Truth will likely bring up any 9-11 Truth organizations that exist in that area. It is 2008, it is now or never, and we are the change we wish to see in the world. 9-11 Truth and Justice starts with us, and supporting the 9-11 first responders is the most urgent thing that any one of us, regardless of our political persuasion or even our understanding of 9-11 itself, can do to help bring about the justice which we are seeking. I end today's podcast in the only way possible. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, and join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. This year, we have asked those who responded to the tragedy to help us lead the ceremonies, both the men and women in official uniform and the volunteers who said, those are my neighbors, let me help. At this time, please join us and all New Yorkers in a moment of silence.